Today's program has been brought to you by the Heritage Meat Shop, located in the historic Essex Street Market in New York City. For more information, visit heritagemeatshop.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Episode 64 of The Morning After. I'm your faithful host, Jen Tullick. And I'm Jesse Kiefer. Good to see you, Jess. It's great to be here. I feel like I've been to hell and back. Jess is at about 25%. She got a little flu bug. And I have in my system two saltines and a cup of chicken broth. So my sophomore year of college. <laughs> you look fierce. Thank you. Thank you. We, uh, we have a great show today. I'm incredibly excited about this one. Not just because it involves ice cream. Yes, ice cream. Which I think I can eat. Actually, I think, I think, I think that I you should that eat it. Uh, we have the lovely ladies from Finn and Phoebe's Ice Cream, Krista Freeman and Jess Eddy in studio today. We're going to talk to them about their fabulous ice cream, um, which they brought a little sample for us. I'm incredibly excited. I'm just I'm excited to hear how they got things started up because I was telling them earlier, I've certainly like been pickling in my kitchen and said like oh i should do this like i should just become a pickler and then like an hour later i lost all motivation i feel like (laughs) if you say the phrase i've been pickling in my kitchen you're not allowed to say call yourself a pickler you only get you get one wild card where we're gonna give you a little buzzer wait where can i call myself a pickler well anywhere you want i i don't know i'm not myself a pickler but under under your tutelage perhaps i could become one speaking of pickles uh we we also we, we are we're gonna put together a reel of worst slash best segues because we 100 percent have i think every show has we that, probably so. won the trophy for yeah, that exactly Speaking but in all segues. seriousness uh we have a delightful gentleman here today from the global poverty project the u.s director michael trainer is going to talk to us about this amazing organization and the work that they're doing to uh bring attention to and end global poverty which is no small feat but first it's that time it is that magical time uh, we are going to return to our favorite segment, yours and mine, front of house. It's your favorite story. It's front of house. It's a front of house. Such a great jingle. Who did that? Um, this week's front of house comes from a friend of the show, a lovely lady by the name of Anne Malinowski. So we've been featuring uh, friends, friends and families and lovers the last couple of weeks. And uh, Anne gave us a quick little tidbit about a funny thing that happened to her. And as usual, we would like to invite the Dame Joan Plowright, the Baroness Olivier, into studio to do a dramatic reading of this tale. Dame? One time, a guest of mine called me over while she was dining. She said to me, What's in this? Gesturing to her glass of wine. I explained it was 70% Syrah, 20% Cab, 10% Malot. And she said, No, what is it? I stared at her. I'm sure my face was contorting into confusion while I tried to figure out what she was talking about. What do you mean, I said. What is it? What is it made of, she asked. Grapes, I said, uncertain if that was the answer she was looking for. Grapes, she exclaimed. Grapes, she again repeated. I confirmed that indeed wines were made from grapes. And she set back stared at a glass like she had just witnessed the second coming of Christ and she uttered something remarkable unbelievable she said and I nodded my head in astonishment apparently this lovely lady 
had never been told that wine was in fact made from grapes. Moving right along, I later had a couple from the Midwest dining with me, who while ordering asked me if I thought they wrote boring and if I thought they were ordering in a boring manner. I assured them no, no they were not, they were just fine. Dessert rolls around and the beautiful lemon tart with buttermilk gelato came out. Shaved lemon granita and candied Myers lemon slices. Oh, the tart one of twenty baked throughout the day to ensure the peak of flavor and deliciosity. I ask them how the tart is minutes later and they tell me it's all right for a frozen Costco dessert. I stare at them unsure if they're joking with me. They're not. It's like you have a pastry chef here. So anything we get... Well, it shouldn't taste like it's frozen. I point to the four pastry chefs whipping up wonderful creations and declare, in fact, we do have several very talented pastry chefs on staff and go into detail about what it is that they are eating. The woman points to her husband and tells me he was the one who didn't like the dessert. She thought it was just fine. I left, confused, depleted, alone. Thank you. I feel like all too often that happens where people really underestimate what happens in a restaurant. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or think that they can. My favorite is when people would say things like, you know, I've been making something like this at home lately. Everyone would say, no, you haven't. (laughs) Do you know how many hours went into this? No, you haven't. You have not been making a 16-ounce tomahawk steak. (laughs) Well, speaking of something made at home, uh, we are going to take a break and we're going to come back talk to uh, Finn and Phoebe's ice cream out of Brooklyn, New York. This is the morning after. Old school, new school, everybody hate. Try to tell an MC how to dominate. We got beats that's fresher, no pressure, but we all run, believe we're gonna catch a job. I'm party people, I'm a lunatic. Got you some of my boots, there's cock, tick, tick. Cock your clock, keep flowing in the club. The You're listening to Janitari on the morning after. HeritageRadioNetwork.org The following is a message from the Heritage Meat Shop. Are you tired of just hearing buzzwords? Do you want to actually take part in the food revolution? Then come on down to the Heritage Meat Shop, located in New York's historic Essex Street Market, on the corner of Essex and Delancey. We have rare breed pork, beef, poultry, lamb, and goat. Not to mention charcuterie that'll make you squeal. All raised right, by the right people, so you know they'll taste right. Try the meat that over 100 New York chefs ache for. Come to the Heritage Meat Shop and pick up some revolution today. For more information, visit heritagemeatshop.com. And we're back here on the morning after. In studio today, Jess, Eddie, and Krista Freeman of Finn and Phoebe's Ice Cream. Welcome to the studio, ladies. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Came all the way from Greenpoint. Very All the way to Bushwick. (laughs) They, They trekked so far to get here with a huge box 
well, it's, it's a cooler, if you will, of ice cream. So hopefully we'll jump into that in a little bit. But first, I want to hear how you guys got started. Um, like I said, I have no motivation to do anything like this. So um, so I'd love to know how you kind of came to the idea and then and then followed through with it. Sure. Yeah. So we started making ice cream in our kitchen um, as a hobby. So we were on the hunt for like really good ice cream. We bought this uh, pint of ice cream. It was a little on the pricey side. And we had you don't really want to say what what brand it was. I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. We're going to leave right, that as enough. a mystery. And maybe when we write, we write the book in 20 years, maybe we'll put it in there. <laughs> but um, so we had some high expectations. We bought this ice cream and we were a little let down. We said, OK, well, let's not make that mistake again. Let's spend some money on an ice cream machine oh. and we'll just start, you know, making our own ice cream. And it's kind of, you know, started as an accident, as a hobby um, and then snowballed into this much bigger thing over the course of several months. That, um, so how much does an ice cream machine cost? Because that uh, that already is a big endeavor. It is. So the one we bought is like a tiny two-quart machine, and I think it's like $50? Yeah, so that one's actually pretty cheap. But then eventually we did buy a, a little bit more of an expensive one. You know, that was like a four-quart machine, and it was pretty expensive for how much ice cream actually output. So Yeah, but if you <laughs> buy a, a one that makes, you know, you can make a lot of ice cream with, you can spend $30,000 on a machine. So... On a small That's scale. A car. Yeah. yeah. So are you so you're making the ice cream for yourself. How much does it make for you? And then you're eating the ice cream and, and you're feeling good about it. <laughs> yeah, and then you have to make some more because it goes away really really fast. <laughs> exactly. Well what was your uh, what was your first flavor that you tried out? So the first flavor we made um, was called Fluffnut. And this is kind of like where the magic started to happen a little bit. So um, and this is like kind of how our creative process works and at the time we didn't really know it was a creative process, but um, you know, we, we modeled it after those really delicious Ritz cracker marshmallow peanut butter sandwiches you ate as kids. Well, we ate them anyway. I don't know if you ever had I, them. I eat them currently. Okay, very good. <laughs> no, where did you grow up? That, I've never heard of those. Um, Maine. Oh, okay, they have them in Maine. Got to go to Maine. Yep. Um, so that was a delicious treat. And we said, okay, we want to make something that resembles that. Um, then Krista was like, well, that sounds good, but like, let's cover it in caramel and then cover it in chocolate. And I was like, Christopher wow. Christopher the win. Yeah, Christopher the win. <laughs> And so we made that, and it turned out really well, and we got really excited, and we said, hey, this is kind of cool. Like, it's new, it's different, um, it's unique, it tastes great, let's do it again. So you, you made your first flavor, the fluff nut, mm-hmm. and what made you feel like it was good enough to, to take out to, uh, to these fairs and, and um, to, to different people to kind of put your product out there? Yeah. Um, I guess when you taste something for the first time, it's hard to describe, but when you taste something for the first time, you just have a, a visceral reaction to it, mm-hmm. and you know it's, like, really good, and it's special. And I think we saw something special there um, that we try to model a lot of other flavors after, and we want it to be something surprising and something that maybe you've never experienced before and makes you really go, like, wow, this is this is really good. So where did you take it to? We took it to our mouths, and then... <laughs> And then we, you know, we, we had some friends try it, um, but, you know, that's, that's not as a reliable as, of an indicator as, like, giving it to a stranger and seeing what they say. So we knew that we wanted to have some validation that was outside of our friendly circle. And so, like, not like Brooklyn Fair, but there's, like, the Hester Street market you took it to. Yeah, we did that. Our, our first, um, what was our first? Um, it was the Brooklyn Lyceum. Okay. And so we got in there in a whim. They, um, we put up a fake, like, one-page website to get in. Um, then we got in, and um, we took off from work for, like, three days to make ice cream. 
you know, for this event that, you know, it's like for like 600 people. And we, um, we had like six flavors that we served there. We had our fluff nut, our banana pudding flavor, which then was called banana dang, our coconut key lime, ginger cookie snap. Then we also had one called caramel brownie boom. And then we also had a goat cheese with goat's milk caramel, like a carchetta that we served there as well. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) My, my. (laughs) You all right, Jen? Uh, no, I'm gonna be fine. Yeah, you're gonna make I'm it gonna through. Be just fine. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So, so the the reception was good, and then you went decided to go to Ice Cream University. Yeah, and this is kind of like fast forwarding several months. Okay. Um, so we started making ice cream for the very first time in February, and then we did that event a few months later, and then did some summer events throughout the summer, and then got into the fall. And at this point, it had felt like we'd been making ice cream for a lifetime because we were both working full time no sleep, doing this at night, on the weekends, as much as possible. So we did as much as we could until we kind of, like, were like, okay, now what? What do we do with this? Mm-hmm. You know, we're tired, we're ragged, um, you know, we never sleep, so what's we're next? arguing about flavor names. <laughs> no, I don't know. What a, what a fabulous thing to fight about. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I just made that up. I, I hope that didn't happen. No, actually, I do hope <laughs> you can tell us about it. But So I imagine... When you when you go to one of these fairs for the first time, obviously you have no point of reference for how much you are or are not going to sell. So how do you determine what quantity you make? You yeah. just make a bunch and hope for the best. Yeah, it's really hard, you know, to tell them. There's only so much we can make, you know, ourselves because at that time we were making we were using two small two core ice cream machines and we're just running them simultaneously, and to make all the ice cream we didn't have a proper ice cream machine. Um, so, yeah, this I think by the halfway through the second day we completely sold out um we didn't have anything left so you know it was a success but sometimes we would you know make too much for the hester street fair and you know not sell as much but yeah it was it's it's hard to gauge a lot of times so you're making it at home which means you're obviously storing it at home where was all that ice cream going there in the beginning Um, you just filled up the end did you have to like dump out your freezer of all yeah, other yeah, items, yep. I'm assuming, and just <laughs> yep. fill it up mm-hmm. to the rim. Yep. And we would get, like, coolers of dry ice to put stuff in prior to the, you know, prior to that the Brooklyn Lyceum. Yeah. Right. Mm. I can't imagine traveling with a temperature-sensitive product like that. I mean, it's hard enough, you know, you're hauling your stuff around, you're schlepping your, your product, and it's something that can melt so quickly. Yeah, you know, it gets st- super stressful sometimes. I get, like, a little crazy on the road. I'm like, I got ice cream, people, watch out! I'm like, come through! <laughs> Crazy you know, ice cream lady. Yeah. <laughs> but now we have these really great freezer bags where, like, if we bring them to somewhere like today, you know, it keeps ice cream cold for, like, four hours. So it's great. great. Yeah. And is there's there has to be an optimal ice cream temperature, right? Because you don't want it to be too cold. Mm-hmm. You don't want it to be too soft, obviously. Is, is there actually, like, a, a Fahrenheit temperature for that? So it can actually never be too cold. Oh, really? Um, but it can definitely be too warm, obviously. So... I think negative negative thirty is probably like the the ideal temperature for like storing it. We want it like yeah negative thirty negative twenty. But for like eating serving, you want it to be around like actually eight degrees for scooping. You know, okay. so um, so it's because it'd be easier to scoop. But when we store it, we store everything at like negative twenty because it you know helps increase the shelf life. The guys in the kitchen at the restaurant I used to work at called their biceps their canal muscles because when they would have all night with there on the pastry line, they would be canaling that freezing cold ice cream. Yeah, it wasn't warm enough, and it was just like that motion, and they got some canal muscles. Aaron, my my girlfriend Aaron, uh, 
worked at Baskin Robbins throughout high school, and she still claims she has a forearm muscle from from scooping ice cream, <laughs> and she will show it to anyone. I mean, obviously, radio is a terrible forum to see that, but um, so you ended up going to uh, University of Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, we went to Ice Cream University at uh, at Penn State. Oh, Penn State. Yeah, they which have sounds- to be different. They have to be different. Yeah. I probably really screwed that it's up. It's totally fine. <laughs> um, no ice cream for you. No <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like a fictional place. Um, it's yep. like, okay, you went to clown school. That's great. <laughs> Which is an actual place, too. I'm <laughs> Nothing sure. wrong with a clown. <laughs> we'll talk. <laughs> so you go to Ice Cream University. And like, how does one enroll? Is there a, a rigorous admission process? I don't think it was rigorous. I think you just have to get in before the deadline and before it sells out. Yeah. Um, it's almost like going to like a conference, you know, like for people like so lots of people in the actual ice cream industry go. So people that like work in the plants, you know, at like, you know, Ben and Jerry's or people that are have a mom and pop ice cream shop or somebody that just really loves ice cream and wants to go do a bunch of math and <laughs> learn about, you know, you know, how, you know, the proper freezing temperatures and like you know, non-fat milk solids and all that kind of stuff. Crazy. It's a stuff. lot of lot of food science. It's like yeah. it's, it's like a seven day food science course, like really crammed in yeah. into one. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. we have like we had huge binders. They're like this thick that we reference a lot of times. Yeah. So you really did take back a whole lot from from Ice Cream University. We physically took back huge books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so so you. You've committed to the ice cream at this point, and you've decided to quit your jobs. Yeah, and that happened. We quit our jobs, was it two years ago? Yeah, in January of 2011 is when we quit our jobs. We went to, like, Ice Cream University, like, the next, like, week right after we, you know, our last days of work. And then from there, um, we, you know, like, wrote a business plan, you know, to get funding for our business and everything and launch it properly. So tell me, there, ice cream to me... It, I, I imagine it's actually rather simple, right? The machine is the, the most important part, or tell me if I'm wrong. It's actually really complicated. Okay. <laughs> it's probably one tell of the us. most most complicated yeah. foods um, that there is to make. So, well, it's all science, and it's like this perfect balance of uh, fat content, non-fat milk solids, water, sugar, um, and there's a very fine balance. So it's all about the formula, right? And there's many different types of ice creams that have different, varying different types of formulas, so it depends on what you like, but um, it's all about that formula and then how you flavor that formula. So what's what's the, the sort of bedrock? Like, what's the, the basic formula that any good ice cream maker agrees mm-hmm. on? Yeah, so, um, so we make our ice cream with no stabilizers and no syrups, and that was really important to us because ice cream can be a really pure food product if you make it right. Um, so milk, egg, sugar... Um, is, is pretty much the, yeah, heavy the cr- standard yeah. heavy cream. Heavy cream, milk yep. sugar, yeah. Egg yolks. Yep. Egg yolks. Yeah, so the egg yolks are actually our stabilizer, you know, so it's a natural you know, way of stabilizing versus using. There's other natural stabilizers out there like war gums, xanthan gum, et cetera, but that kind of creates a gummy mm-hmm. texture mm-hmm. that we, we just weren't going for, so. Um, and when, as you flavor, that, so that comes later in the process, so you, mm-hmm. have, to, you have to form that, that baseline. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, we make, so we make our mix, and it's pasteurized, so it's the heavy cream, the milk, sugar, egg yolks. It's all put together, and then it goes through the homogenization process where it's, the particles are forced to kind of like bind together. It's put through this little tiny tube, and everything binds together and becomes... Make, that's really where the creaminess comes from, because the sugar will, you know, if it's not all bound together, it'll get like gritty, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's heated, then goes through that process. Then it's, everything's cooled overnight. Then we bring it into these things called flavoring vats, 
And from there, that's like where we make like our coconut key lime. We'll add the key lime juice, the coconut flavoring. And then from there, it goes through through the freezing process. It goes through a freezing process, and then we'll like pump in our graham crackers that we use, and we'll pump them in through there, and they'll meet together and then come out into the pint. Amazing. All right. Yeah. I take back all easy ice cream. Uh, well, I guess I think I've always heard that pastry is is much more scientific. It's all about measurements or mathematical, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I guess that does make sense at this point. Um, so we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with um, director, Trainor. yeah, Michael Trainer, director of uh, Global Pro- Poverty Projects, Live Below the Line campaign, um, and maybe we'll get to taste some ice cream. Woohoo! Morning, this is morning after. after. You're listening to Snickers by Obesity on the Heritage Radio Network.org. on Heritage Radio Network. In studio is uh, a lovely gentleman I'm very excited to have. He is the U.S. Director of the Global Poverty Project, Michael Trainer. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Jess. So I, I found out about uh, this organization in general and also the campaign we're going to discuss in a little bit through our mutual friend, Kate. And I was astounded that I'd never heard of it before and embarrassed that I'd never heard of it before, but uh, immediately got really excited about what you guys are doing. So this, uh, the organization is a, um, a Gates Foundation nonprofit, is that correct? We are funded by the Gates Foundation in right. part, yes. And so it originated in Australia? It did. It, uh, it originated in Australia off of uh, a campaign, uh, which was a global campaign called the Make Poverty History Campaign. And uh, our founder, uh, Hugh Evans, drove a, a youth movement activation in Australia. Very, very cool. They, they got the world's largest projector and projected um, Make Poverty History on the Sydney Opera House. They threw a, a concert and uh, had, had actually Bono give a call that he was in town and was like, we'd like to come uh, perform at your concert. So Bono and Eddie Vedder came and, and came uh, keep on rocking the free world. Nothing and, to shake uh, a stick at. <laughs> and they were, they, they ran a grassroots youth movement and they, they knocked on doors all across Australia. And um, long and short of it is the, the then um, camp uh, campaigner for, for prime minister, 
agreed that if he was elected prime minister, he would um, take on their campaign platform, which was to double Australia's foreign aid. So he was actually elected prime minister and as a result increased uh, the foreign aid budget of Australia by $4.3 billion. So That's remarkable. Now, yeah. you're obviously an American. I am, yes. So how did the American leg of this organization get started and how did you come to the project? Yeah, so off of the success of, of the Make Poverty History uh, campaign and the activation in Australia, um, Global Poverty Project started. It started in Australia and they were invited um, to by the UN actually to, to open uh, and expand. Um, and so they, op- they actually started officially uh, in 2008. That was the Australian uh, vert- basically leg of the organization. We, we launched in the U.S., uh, a little over two years ago, and uh, at the time I, I was a, uh, a filmmaker and basically was focusing mostly on, on organizations with social missions and heard Hugh's story, and he's an incredible dynamic uh, speaker, and so I, I saw him speak and I said, you know, I need Hugh to be a part being... of this. He's the founder of the Global Poverty okay. Project. Co-founder. Great. And so you've you've been uh, working with them for two years now. Two yes, years. Uh, near, since near the beginning in the United States. Yeah. So I imagine you played a large part in the Global Citizen Festival. Yeah. So Hugh, Hugh, uh, when we started, he said, "What are we going to do to put extreme poverty on the map in the U.S.?" And at the time, we there was there was three of us, and we didn't really have any money. Um, but I thought, well, what do we actually have? In, in our wheelhouse uh, that, that could potentially put some of these issues on the map. And I thought, well, we could do a film, um, given my background, but wouldn't likely be able to pull that off at scale in, in a year to the degree that we would need to. Or the other idea was a festival. And so I said, um, here's a six-point plan, the culmination of which is a festival. I have no idea how we're going to do this, but uh, let's go to New York and uh, let's try to, uh, to throw a festival. And to make a long story short, in less than a year, um, it was an, it was amazing to see what when you declare and throw your hat over the fence, what can happen. And we had an incredible group of, of people, a very small team, but but a very committed team come together. And the the city of New York was gracious enough to offer us the Great Lawn uh, and a Saturday on the Great Lawn, Just Central Park. For those of you who don't know, yeah, Central Park, and it was only the second Saturday since Simon and Garfunkel's uh, historic performance in '81. Wow, and. Uh, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, people came out of the woodwork. We we had the Foo Fighters sign on first, uh, and then the Black Keys, who who made significant uh, rearrangements to be able to be there, and then uh, my one of my personal favorites, uh, Neil Young, actually wound up committing, which was phenomenal. So, the the coolest part about the festival, though, was not just the acts. It was we we created a mobile application called Global Citizen, and and the way that people got there was actually through learning about the issues and taking action. And so as you took action, you got points, and those points became your ticket. That, you know, that, that, is, that is the linchpin right there. That is the thing that I, I feel like I have, uh, I'm lucky enough to have a lot of friends that are working for these really cool uh, nonprofits and these really cool social organizations. And if you don't have somebody with their finger on the social media pulse, it's, you're totally in the dark. It's remarkable how much that we've seen that change only in the last five years, I feel. Um, but you guys raised quite a lot of money. It was 
it, it, a remarkable amount of it was, it was yeah so one of the things we decided was we wanted to really approach the issue in new ways we didn't want to you know our whole goal is to galvanize a new generation so to be clear we don't actually do development so we're not if you we're not the kind of organization where you give us twenty dollars and we go to the field and 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 create program we really are a platform so we want to be a catalyst for those organizations that are already out there and effective and, and doing great work we want to help them um, put out their message. And so we invited 10 different really phenomenal organizations, both large and small. So organizations from, say, Charity Water and Pencils of Promise um, up to UNICEF and uh, the global, uh, basically, the Global Fund for Education. So um, it, was, it was large and small organizations. And we asked them each, you know, what could they really bring to the table that would help scale their work? And how could we most effectively utilize the festival as a platform? And so together they came, they came with $1.3 billion in new commitments for programs to serve the world's poor. So it was, it was truly extraordinary. So that's a tremendous amount of momentum. How has that carried you to this current point with this campaign? So at present, we actually, so we, we put in sort of an, a measurement and evaluation framework. We actually just checked in with a lot of the different CEOs to see how they're progressing um, in their commitments. Um, it's, it's actually incredibly exciting. We're about to launch um, a new phase, which is going to scale up these efforts massively. We're hopefully going to launch that next week. So um, if people are interested in learning more, they can, they can follow on uh, Global Citizen, which is our, which is our platform, um, or livebelowtheline.com. But basically, we're, we're, we're about to actually scale this effort so that we're, we're looking at basically the idea of how we can continue to play off of musicians and some of these amazing cultural experiences and, because we really believe that the movement isn't just about online engagement. We don't want to just be a clicktivist organization. We really want to sort of reform the narrative. And so one of the things that I was proudest of with the festival is we actually created 11 short films around the world um, to really tell the story in a different way. We, we really want it to be about global citizenship and the notion that we're all on this planet together uh, and not about you should feel guilty and give us money. And so we went to places like Afghanistan and filmed um, live births, you know, show a different picture of what's coming out of Afghanistan. Worked wow. with a wonderful female filmmaker who documented these extraordinary teenage midwives um, shepherding new life into the world. And, uh, and I think our goal is really to continue to tell new stories and provide platforms where people can engage with these issues in new ways. Are those films available for us to see? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can uh, go on Global Citizen, the website, um, and they're available there. Or you can uh, Google Global Citizen on uh, on YouTube. All of them are accessible. Um, uh, or if you want, uh, I'd be happy to actually share. We have some behind-the-scenes links as well. So if you if you um, hit me up at, at Michael Train, I'd be happy to send them to people. Absolutely, yeah. And that's hopefully uh, something we'll be able to share too. Uh, on our site. So you you have this amazing new campaign coming up here. At least yeah. the, the culmination of it is, is coming up. The Live Below the Line campaign. Tell us about that. Yeah, Live Below the Line is is, is really, really cool. It's, a, it's our largest global campaign. And uh, what it is, is we challenge people, sort of like the New York City Marathon. We, we challenge people to to live on five days for $1.50 or its equivalency in food costs. Um, why $1.50? $1.50 is the extreme poverty line. So right around the world, there's there's currently about 1.4 billion people who live on, on $1.50 a day for everything, for all, for all of their needs. 
and uh, is it an individual person or is it a family? Family. I mean, it, it's we're talking about you know obviously extreme challenges, and and so we really look at that as a justice issue. And so the, the idea behind the campaign is obviously it's a proximate experience. In no way are you living in extreme poverty. You can you know it's it's just for your food costs. You still live where you live, and 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 you know travel to work, etc. But it's it's an amazing it's an amazing experience because you really contend with the issues in a in a new way. So much of the way that we contend with information now is 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 around social media and and Twitter and Facebook and you know you you think about something for for a nanosecond or for if you're lucky for a few minutes. The beauty of live below the line is it's something that people contend with 24 hours a day for five days, uh, and it's an inherently social challenge. I mean, one of the the actual beautiful aspects about a lot of the the communities that are actually living in extreme poverty there's obviously tremendous challenges but oftentimes they're they have a, a stronger social network and social cohesion and so resources are shared and so one of the ways one of the strategies that people deal with live below the line is they actually form teams and they and they pool their resources and you go shopping together and you cook your meal you, you shop in bulk and uh and it was phenomenal for me because when I first did it, I actually started off, I was like, all right, I'm going ramen, I'm going rice, you know, I was just going, what's the cheapest thing I could find? Uh, and and I, like, somatically, you, you realize, I mean, I was slower, I was, I didn't have the mental acuity. Sure. And the third day, I actually ate an egg and it was phenomenal. Like, it, I, I've never realized how food affects my body to that degree. Like, it was like my brain turned on again, I had energy and just like that one protein source. So it was it was it was truly uh, educational experience for me. I was speaking with a dear friend of mine the other day who runs an organization called Digital Democracy and they provide technological resources to marginalized communities uh, mostly abroad, Western Africa, Southeast Asia, etc. But uh, we were having a discussion about uh, geography community and poverty and how uh, the level of community or lack thereof of course will inform uh, the individual experience specifically as it pertains to eating and in culture to culture that's going to vary because uh, in you know pockets of our country we are very insular and I wondered you know if you had seen that and and how varied it was within the United States of one place versus another because you know there are certainly people that are living in, in low-income neighborhoods that are living alone they don't have the family and if they do I think that can help develop a sense of community but I, it's interesting to consider a, a person who's living this way um, with that little of means in a community of 30 people that are going to look after you to the best of their abilities versus someone who's on their own. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it's really wild to start looking at the politics of food, which isn't necessarily what, what the campaign itself is about. But, um, you know, food is, is such a huge aspect of our culture, as is, as is music. You know, it's, it's the, I mean... It's the way that people get together and, and, and share experience and form bonds. Uh, and so, and, and obviously there's also tremendous consequence to our global economy and how people actually raise themselves out of poverty in, in terms of trade and, and macroeconomic policy. So it, it, it is a really wonderful lens to view some of these issues. And, and we're actually looking at, at ways in which we can sort of start activating, you know, different communities through food, you know, and uh, looking at the Food Network, actually, some of their, their hosts are going to want of taking on these challenges and and uh, hopefully in the future maybe plug into restaurant week and just get people again not not to feel guilty but start thinking about you know where their food comes from obviously there's a huge movement around local um, local locally sourced food products but but also start to look at how food um, 
is sourced? Is trade fair and equal? And how do these issues obviously affect fellow global citizens? Have you have you seen much of a contrast and the way the movement has manifested in Australia versus the states? Well, I think it is really remarkable to, to look at the different... We have offices now in Australia, in the U.S., uh, in the U.K., and in Canada. We really, because we're an education and advocacy organization, really focus largely on the OECD countries and the BRIC nations. But it is phenomenally different what resonates with, say, an Australian audience, a U.K. audience, an American audience. And, and America is obviously significantly larger. I mean, when they did the Make Poverty History Movement... Uh, there was about 20 million um, citizens in Australia, and they activated around a million of them. So, I mean, that's a huge proportion, but we're talking about, you know, 300 million people in the United States. And, and, and obviously a lot more competition in terms of channels that people, that people follow. So it's a, it's a, it's a more challenging, it's a more challenging place to, to really galvanize people's attention. Uh, but I think with activations like the festival and campaigns like Live Below the Line, our goal is, is to really you know, create really dynamic and unique uh, environments that people get really excited by and then and then become ambassadors and share it out to their networks because obviously the best best form of growth is when people are excited about something and then share it with their community. Absolutely. Well, it's remarkable what you're doing and I'm really humbled by the work that you guys are accomplishing. And remind us again where we can find out more. Yes, yeah, so you can sign up uh, at livebelowtheline.com and uh, you can also Google Global Citizen. We have a uh, globalcitizen.org. We have a, an incredible website where we're actually about to launch um Again, this huge initiative. I wish I could share it tonight, but we're, we're gonna we're gonna take another music theme uh, and we're gonna scale this this campaign way up. So so definitely sign up at livebelowtheline.com and and we'll send you an email real quickly to announce what that is. Great, Michael Trainer from the Global Poverty Project. Thank you so much. We're thank, gonna take a quick break and we're gonna be right back with what's on the menu with Chardonnays here on Heritage Radio. You're listening to Heaven by Obesity on the Heritage Radio Network.org.
And we are back here on the morning after on heritageradionetwork.org. We've had a great day, and we're going to end it here with a little bit of ice cream, which I'm excited about. But first, don't think I forgot. Uh, We are going to check out what we're featuring on the pre-fee menu this week at your favorite restaurant and mine, Chardonnay's. Thank you, Sade. Um, so this week, I, we're featuring a pre-fee, as I said, at Chardonnay's, and it's specifically a, a hangover pre-fee. You know what it's like. You partied the night before. You need to go eat some hangover food, soak up the booze. So uh, this week at Chardonnay's, we are featuring a special. We are going to do a triple-decker Frisco melt with a side of buffalo chicks wings with zesty ranch. Also, it is family night at Chardonnay's, so kids under 30 eat free and receive a super swirly sprinkle cone. Uh, grown-ups can upgrade their hangover prefee for 99 cents and receive a two-pack of Aleve and Alka-Seltzer. Followed, of course, by a pre-packaged bag of Doritos with a side of buffalo chick sauce, just in case you still missed it. And we're going to send you out with an Alka-Seltzer in a Sprite with a bendy straw. How much is the prefee? $3.99. That is a deal. $3.99. And uh, we have a hair of the dog upgrade, which is $4.99, which gets you a pitcher of bush light. So come check it out at Chardonnay's. It, I mean, you need to have your, your fluids anyway uh, after that. So I think Bushlight will be... Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we have Finn and Phoebe's ice cream here. And I, I want to know what the ultimate Chardonnay's ice cream flavor is. Hangover. Hangover ice cream. I think, I think the best hangover ice cream, you know, to have a little hair of the dog is probably Bloody Mary ice cream. Yes. Which <gasps> would be pretty disgusting, Dairy I think. Dairy and tomato. It'll be like pizza ice cream. Is it sweet? It's um, it's a little tangy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's a little lemon. Oh, there's some unknown texture, unidentifiable. <laughs> um, Cilantro flakes. Yeah. yeah. Or the horseradish. <laughs> horseradish, yeah. for sure, because I can't think of anything that goes oh, better with cream. <laughs> you know, I feel like the sole purpose of this hangover ice cream is to take your mind off of how bad your hangover is, because nothing could be worse than actually <laughs> eating that horseradish ice cream. Yeah. That would be pretty rough. Okay, so we've we've got two ice creams yeah, here. We, out of, yeah, out of the freezer bag, I just I randomly grabbed the uh, Viet- wow. Vietnamese iced coffee, right? Yep. Wow. So what what goes into Vietnamese iced coffee traditionally? So traditionally, it's made with sweetened condensed milk and cardamom. Um, so we try to replicate the the flavor. So all the flavors that we make, we want to be really true to form, taste like the real thing. Um, we don't use sweetened condensed milk because that's not something we wanted on the label. But uh, vanilla does a very good job of replicating that flavor. Um, and there is cardamom in, in, in there as well. Oh, it's a chicory. Also, it's a chicory coffee blend. Chicory Sorry. coffee yeah, blend, so yeah. typically a chicory coffee blend with condensed milk. Oh, my God. It's delicious. So um, and then I also grabbed out the banana whamma. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that one. So this is our uh, banana pudding flavor. And this is an ode to, to Krista's southern heritage. Um, mm-hmm. So when we first started making this flavor, we literally threw banana pudding into cream and milk and um we don't do that anymore obviously but that was the that was the inspiration yeah so in this one we have hand-baked vanilla style wafers that go inside of that so it's like a vanilla wafer but it's all natural and it's our own recipe you guys aren't eating any it's too far away i can't reach it (laughs) so um so uh where can we where can we get this this ice cream in in the city and i'm sure you can do it online too right yeah so you can go to our our website if you just google finn and phoebes or go to finnandphoebes.com um we're in in whole foods um, we're in a lot of local stores like uh, the Green Grape, uh, Brooklyn Fair, a um, lot of lot of stores around the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. 
Marlowe and Daughters, too? Yeah, Mar- yeah yep. Marlowe and Daughters. Yeah, like lots of, you know, um, like foragers, markets, things like that. Awesome. Yep. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys so much for bringing ice cream. It's it's really helping my stomach virus. <laughs> no, I promise you. It's all you needed. And Michael, one more time, uh, let us know where where we can check out a global po- property property. Michael's Project. got a mouthful of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> my mouth sounds like frozen. Uh, you can uh, go to livebelowtheline.com or globalcitizen.org. Fabulous. It's been so wonderful to be here with you, Jen. You're looking great, girl. <laughs> Keep up the good work. Stay hydrated. And to all of you out there, we adore you. We'll see you next week on the morning after here on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.